how we began. And it's who we are. It's how we fell. It's how we were kept down. It's how we were delivered from enemies and from ourselves. Passed from generation to generation so that you can know your purpose, your past, your future, your origin story. So good to see you guys this weekend. And before I jump into the message, and I know you cannot wait for Leviticus, before I jump in, um, I want to say a little bit about our giving. I don't say a lot about giving around here. I think I said something about it in January. That was months ago. Last July, I talked about it. Every once in a while, I have to say something about it. And some of you are like new to the church, like, yeah, you don't even take offerings. You love that, by the way. We don't take offerings, right? But summer hits and people get away. They go to the beach, they go to the mountains. They spend Jesus's money on other things. So every year this time, I have to give just a little reminder that we can't reach the triangle. We can't change the world unless we stay faithful by being generous people. Uh, we can't do the things that we're obligated to do unless we stay faithful. There's just certain things that depend on our generosity. For example, we give tens of thousands of dollars every year to Bread of Life Ministry that makes sure that 3,100 families in Wake County are fed every month. So you're a part of that. You probably didn't even know that. On top of that, a few years ago, USA Today had an article that identified Southeast Raleigh as a food desert, which meant there was an area in Southeast Raleigh where the residents did ha not have fresh produce or fresh meat within a seven mile radius. And so you know what we did at Hope? We opened a grocery store, we built a grocery store. And part of your giving goes to subsidize the cost of that store so that the neighbors who live in that very poor area of town can afford to buy the groceries there. We partner with Whole Foods, it's been incredible, but those kinds of things have to continue to be done. Uh, we're, we're involved in places all over the world. We're involved in Haiti and India and Nicaragua and, and Costa Rica and Uganda. In fact, we just sent 25 of our high schoolers to our campus in Haiti. They had camp last week. 212 young children gave their life to Jesus Christ. They're now a part of God's family because, because of your investment. We couldn't even open our campuses on the weekend without your generosity. Last Friday, uh, last Monday morning, about five o'clock in the morning, I was at the airport, I was flying out to Canada. A young lady walked up to me and she said, Pastor Mike, I'm heading out on, to California on a business trip, but I saw you and I had to say something to you. She said, my boyfriend came to church with me yesterday and he accepted Christ as his personal savior for the very first time. See, those kinds of things don't open if we're not open, don't happen if we're not open our campuses, but we're reaching the triangle, we're changing the world, that takes generosity. And one of the things we like to say here at Hope, it's not about equal gifts, it's about equal sacrifice, equal sacrifice. And so let me just say this, if you've gotten behind in your giving a little bit, uh, your commitment to Hope, I hope you'll do your best to catch up. If you're new to Hope, uh, you're probably wondering how do you even give, you don't take an offering. Uh, there's several ways you can give. You can give online. You can actually set it up as an automatic draft. Laura and I do that. You know, our, our tithe just comes out automatically. It's kind of like paying your mortgage or your car payment or anything else. 
And it's so cool because when it comes out automatically, you never miss it. It's kind of like, you know, the government taking all the money out of your paycheck before you get it. You don't really miss it because it's never really yours. And that's kind of been very, very helpful over our lifetime. Uh, You can download the Get Hope app. You can give through the app. Uh, There are giving boxes in the atrium of all of our campuses. But we would encourage you. I'm telling you, you're never more like God than when you give. Because God so loved the world. What did he do? He gave. He gave his only begotten son. Now, enough about that. I know that you will respond Accordingly, this is the third week of our series, Origin Stories. It's based on the Pentateuch. We've learned the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Have two goals in this series. One is that we can see how these five books fit together. But more importantly, I want you to see that these five books that make up the Pentateuch actually lay the foundation for everything that we believe as Christians. And now we've finally gotten to the book that you've been waiting for. I can see it on your face, the anticipation. Most of you did not even sleep last night because we're going to talk about Leviticus this weekend. And if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, this is probably where you got bogged down. I mean, there's a reason there's a movie about the Exodus, but there's not a, a movie about the book of Leviticus, okay? And whatever else you may say about the book, it is not your basic bedside reading material. Some of it's interesting. Some of it's insightful. To be honest, most of it's not. But just because the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God doesn't mean that all of it's going to be interesting to read. The simple fact is there are some sections of the Bible, there are some parts of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, that are tough, sledding, even boring. And one of the reasons that some of the Bible is boring is because it was never designed to be interesting to us because there are certain parts of the Bible that weren't actually written for us. So let me just give you a couple of suggestions as you're studying the book of Leviticus. Remember, first of all, Leviticus was never intended for us. Understand when God uh, recorded, when God preserved the book of Leviticus, he didn't have in mind Americans living in the 21st century. He wasn't thinking about people who worshiped in permanent buildings, who had campuses made up of thousands and thousands of people meeting on multiple campuses. He wasn't thinking about people uh, who lived in cities and didn't farm. He wasn't thinking about people who didn't raise sheep or didn't have access to them. He didn't write it to Protestants. He didn't write it to Catholics. He didn't write it to Lutherans or Methodists or Baptists. God wrote the book of Leviticus to Jews who worshiped in a portable house of worship, to Jews who could never, ever approach God without a sacrifice. And believe me, when you lived in that day and the only way to get to God was through a sacrifice, you wanted to know how to do it. But you gotta understand, now that Jesus has come, we don't need animal sacrifices to approach God. And it's because when Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, he became the ultimate once and for all sacrifice for all of mankind. And as a result, the book of Leviticus has lost its punch. But you gotta understand, it was designed that way, which brings up the second point. Leviticus was actually designed to become obsolete. And that's not heresy. God designed the book of Leviticus to go out of date. In fact, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and when he finally got to the point right before he died, when he said, it is finished, he was referring to the entire Levitical system. He was referring to the law. He was referring to the old covenant. He was referring to the need for sacrifice or the need for a priest to be our mediator. He was referring to the rules and the law. All of that Old Testament ritual became obsolete Because when Jesus died on the cross, when he said, it is finished, Jesus became the way that we could now go directly to God through him. So now we have an inside channel. Now we have direct 
access. So understand, Leviticus was designed to become obsolete, kind of like cell phones. Have you noticed that? You buy a cell phone, it was designed in three weeks to be obsolete, so you need a new one, right? It was designed to become obsolete, but let me clarify one thing, not in its application. In fact, you cannot really understand and appreciate the book of Hebrews in the New Testament if you don't understand the book of Leviticus. None of the Bible is absolute, obsolete in its application, but in its basic impact, in its basic interpretation for today, sometimes it's obsolete because see, as we sit here this weekend, we don't need the book of Leviticus to find access to God. So let's do this, let's survey the book and let's see what we can learn that will help us today. Let's just start like we do every week. Let's start by understanding the meaning of the name. Does it take a scholar to figure out that the root of the word Leviticus is the word Levite? In fact, the name Leviticus literally means pertaining to the Levites, which brings up the question, who were the Levites? Well, the Levites, they were the ancient priests of the Old Testament. By the way, when you think of priests in the Old Testament, if you think instead of the word priest, if you think of mediator, it will make more sense. For example, in those days, for a Jew to approach God, they had to go through a mediator. They had to go through a priest, and that priest was from the tribe of Levi. He was a Levite. And so understand, the book of Leviticus is information for those mediators who were going to represent the people to God. It was kind of like the handbook for the priest. It told them what to do. It told them how to do it. It, it told them when to do it. It told them why to do it. It even spelled out the consequences of not doing. But understand this, and I'll say more about this later. Because of what Christ did for us on the cross, we no longer have to approach God through an earthly priest. Now, I got a joke I want to tell you because I got to spice up the, the book of Leviticus a little bit. And I'm going to try it on this service, and if it goes south, I won't tell it anymore. But my dad and my mom are 90 and 87, and they told me it was okay. So we're going to go with them, okay? So little Johnny was Catholic, and Johnny went to see the priest. And he got into the booth, and the priest said, Johnny, what are you doing here? He said, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And the priest said, Johnny, what did you do? He said, well, I behaved inappropriately with my girlfriend. And the priest said, well, Johnny, that bothers me. You're an altar boy, and you're held to a higher standard. You should know better than that. So you need to really come clean if I'm going to absolve you of all this. And Johnny said, yes, sir. That's why I'm here. He said, I need you to help me. I need you to give me the name of your girlfriend. And Johnny said, well, I don't think I can do that. I don't think that would be right. And the priest says, was it Sarah Johnson? He said, no, priest, I, it wasn't her, but I don't, I don't think I can tell you her name. Was it Mary Salerno? I, I told you, priest, I just wouldn't feel comfortable. I mean, she wants to come to you, that's fine. I, was her name Deb Anderson? He said, I can't tell you, priest, I will not tell you. So the priest Johnny, said, Johnny, I'm very disturbed about this. I try to give you a chance to come clean. You're an altar boy held to a high expectation. I think the only fair thing to do is to tell you that you cannot be an altar boy for the next month. So little Johnny walks out and he's walking out. His friend Jimmy's walking in. Jimmy says to Johnny, he said, how'd it go? Johnny said, not bad. Got a month vacation and three good leads. <laughs> okay, that's good. See, that's good stuff. It's good stuff. Now don't send me any emails, it's Leviticus, okay? I gotta talk about something, right? But my point is simply this. Aren't you glad you don't have to go to a priest anymore? Now let me show you why. Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus is hanging on the cross. It's the day of the crucifixion. It says, about three in the afternoon after Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatane, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, this is the part of the crucifixion Jesus dreaded. This is why he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is why he prayed, if there's any other way. It wasn't, it wasn't the nails in the hand. It wasn't the nails in the feet. It wasn't the crown of thorns. That's bad enough. 
but he knew at some point the Father was going to pour onto him the weight of every sin that would ever be committed by every person that ever lived. And Jesus knew at that moment the Father would have to turn his back because he could not, being a holy God, look on the sin. And they had never experienced anything but perfect fellowship. So he cries out, why have you forsaken me? Verse 50, and it says, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple. Remember last week, it used to be a tent, but eventually they built a temple. And there was the outer court, and there was the tent, and then there was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now this is a permanent place, now it's the, but it's still the same principle. It was the Holy of Holies. It was separated by a veil. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because Jesus, when he died on the cross, gave us instant access into the presence of a holy God when he once and for all gave his blood for our sin. And when that happened, God said, I find favor in my son. I'm satisfied with his death. The debt is paid. And anyone who chooses to accept this free gift of salvation that's been provided by the blood of my son, he can come directly to me. You don't need to go through a priest. You don't need to go through any man to get to God. Jesus gave you direct access. You can go boldly. Paul says, whereby you can cry, Abba. It means daddy. That's the way you can approach God. People will come up to me and say, hey, Mike, could you, could you say a special prayer? Listen, my prayer has no more impact than your prayer. I have no more direct access to God than you do. People will say, could you come and bless our house? You can bless your house just as effectively as I can. You can pray for God to build a hedge of protection around your home, around your family. I don't need to do that for you. You have direct access to God. So keep that in mind. Now, how does Leviticus fit in with the rest of the Pentateuch? Well, you remember that for a couple of months, the people traveled, the people of Israel, they traveled from Egypt. Remember the Exodus to Mount Sinai. We looked at that last week. At the base of Mount Sinai, we learned last week that they spent a full year. During that year's time, God basically gave them two things. One, he gave them his written word, and then he gave them plans for the tabernacle. He basically said, this is my written word, walk in it. And then he said, this is a blueprint for the house I want you to build, worship in it. So understand, Leviticus taught the people how to worship God in this portable house of God. By the way, the tabernacle was a very, very clever idea. You may remember, I showed you the picture of it. It's a tent. It could be rolled up. It could be carried on the shoulders of the people. And when they stopped and stayed at a place long enough, they could unroll the tabernacle. They could set it up. And it was in this tent of meetings that God met with his people. Now, understand, all of this was significant to the Jew. To us, not that significant. But the beauty of the book of Leviticus is that these sacrifices, these offerings that we're going to look at in the next five chapters over the next few minutes, they're actually portraits of Jesus. They're the, they're the preview of the coming attraction. In other words, when the people brought an offering to the priest, the priest took the offering on behalf of the people. He made the sacrifice on behalf of the people. But understand, when he did that, the people were looking forward. See, we look back in faith. We look back 2,000 years to what Jesus Christ did for us. In the Old Testament, they were looking forward in faith. They were looking forward to the Messiah that would one day come, who would be the Savior, who would take away the sins of the world. So they looked forward in faith. And so understand, Leviticus is a preview of Jesus Christ bringing his offering, literally himself, before God, pouring out his blood on our behalf. And when Jesus paid for our sins with his blood, when he paid with the ultimate perfect sacrifice, at that moment, God did away with, for the need of any other sacrifices. But before Jesus became our ultimate sacrifice, you had to have an offering if you were going to approach God. 
And Leviticus talked about that. So let's look at the first five chapters. Let's learn quickly about the five different offerings. They all portray Jesus from a different perspective. For example, you get to chapter one, verse one, it talks about the burnt offering. It says, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meetings. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meetings so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. Now, let me just say this. this. This Hebrew word for burnt offering suggests the idea of something that's going to be totally consumed by fire. And so whatever animal was brought, it was going to be totally consumed by fire. It was, going to, it was going to include the hoofs, the tail, the eyelids, the lips, the earlobes. It was going to be totally consumed. But just reading those verses, make sure you notice the detail. It had to be a certain kind. It had to be a certain sex. It had to be offered at a certain place. It had to be offered in a certain way. So according to verse, chapter 1, verse 3, so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. And it's interesting to me that God never explains why. He doesn't say why it has to be a certain kind of animal, why it has to be killed a certain kind of way, why it has to be this. Has to be. He never says that. He just tells them to do it. And I think it's because for God to explain everything, let's be honest, it wouldn't require a whole lot of faith. But for God to say, hey, listen, do this and you will live, well, it requires you to do it without knowing all the wise. So we have this burnt offering. And this burnt offering, it is a portrait. It's a picture of the complete dedication of Jesus. It portrays the total consecration of his life. And consecration is just a big church word that means set apart for a specific purpose. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, he was set apart for a specific person. He came to be the savior of the world. And that's why when he was hanging on the cross before the father, it was so important that he said, hey, father, it is finished. Because what he was saying was this, I left nothing undone. Everything you sent me here to do has been accomplished. Mankind now has a way to be reconciled back directly to you. So his total consecrate, the fact that God, Jesus was just all in. I'm all in. Chapter 2 talks about the grain offering. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, when anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. They are to pour olive oil on it, put incense on it, take it to Aaron's son, the priest. The priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all the incense, burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. See, so if, if you were a priest, you didn't have to wonder what to do with a, with a grain offering if you had the book of Leviticus. In other words, when someone would bring a grain offering, he could look it up. He would know exactly how to handle it because, see, the book of Leviticus gives you the guidelines. And that's important because understand, this is what God expected. And let me just say this right here. That's the very same way that we're supposed to live our lives now, by the way, as followers of Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example. When someone decides to get married, this is what you need to do, young people of singles. You need to search the Bible. You need to discover God's guidelines. You need to discover the kind of person that God would be pleased with you marrying because, see, you can find those guidelines in the Bible. When you get married and you start a family, if you want to know what a godly parent looks like, just dig into God's word and you'll find the guidelines for what that looks like. If you want to know how to have healthy relationships that honor God, dig into his word and you will find the guidelines for how to do that. If you want to know how to handle your finances, and by the way, if you got a little huffy puffy when I talked about giving, you need to dig in to God's word 
and discover the guidelines for handling your finances. But you got to understand, the Bible is our guideline. The Bible is our handbook to follow. Now, here's the bad part. A lot of us don't follow it. But I'm telling you, it's there. And I'll just add this. Can you imagine how much simpler our lives would be if we just followed God's word? How much simpler our lives would be when we face some kind of situation, some kind of crossroad, if we just paused long enough and thought, before I make any decision, I wonder what God's word says. I wonder what the guidelines are. The priests of that day had guidelines. And when a grain offering was brought, see, the priest knew exactly what God expected. By the way, the grain offering represents the service or the ministry of Jesus. For example, the people grew the grain. Uh, it was ground into fine flour by the people. It was the work of their own hands. It represented the service of their life to God. It was the same way with Jesus. Understand, when Jesus was on this earth, he performed all of his miracles. He performed all of his ministry, not to impress the people, not to wow the crowds. It was like, woo, you ought to watch what I'm going to do with this bread and fish today. It wasn't like that. You know why he did it? For the Father's glory. That's why when he was praying in John 17, right before the, the, the Gethsemane, right before the arrest, right before the beating, right before the crucifixion, this is what he prayed in John 17, 4. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing up the work you gave me to do. Everything I did, Father, I did for your glory. He was offered up as a fine flower. You read about the peace offering in chapter 3, verse 1, and I went back to the New American Standard because I think the NIV messed it up. But this is what it says. Now, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, it's called a fellowship offering in the NIV, if he is going to offer out of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering. So we have different details. And he shall slay it at the doorway of the tent of meetings. And you can go on and read the next 17 verses and it tells you about all the details. But this peace offering are in the NIV called fellowship offering. It represents Jesus as our peace. Understand this, as a Christian, you do not have to work hard to have peace with God. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he won your peace for you. Paul said this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Later on, when he wrote to the, book, uh, to the, to the uh, church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, For he himself is our peace. Do you know what that means if you're watching, listening at one of our campuses this weekend and you're a Christian? It means you don't have to ask to have peace with God. You don't have to search for peace, beg for peace. You don't have to behave a certain way to have peace with God. It's not by our work, our labor. It's not by our sacrifice. It's not by our offerings, our efforts. It's not by our good deeds that we have peace with God. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And so when you stand and God looks at you, it's like Jesus says, he's with me. And God goes like, cool, cool, peace. You know, I don't know. I think he does that. But anyway... When he sees us with his son, Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. By the way, let me just say this. As you study these offerings, you cannot help but come away with a very practical sense of gratitude. I mean, aren't you glad you don't have to grow all this grain? And aren't you glad that you don't have to breed all of these animals? And aren't you glad, unless you live in Fuquay, you don't have to live around all of these animals, right? But you got to understand, if you were a Jew under the law, every time you wanted to approach God, you had to bring an animal. You had to bring a sacrifice. You had to have a certain kind of urn to pour the blood into. And you had to go by the book. 
or your sacrifice wouldn't be accepted and you wouldn't be forgiven. But again, once Jesus was offered for us, once he ushered in that new covenant of love and forgiveness and mercy and grace, all of these offerings, all of these sacrifices, they were set aside once and for all. You get to chapter four, you can learn about the sin offering. I'll just tell you, this deals with our sin nature. We're all born with a sin nature. It's the doctrine of depravity. When Adam and Eve disobeyed in the Garden of Eden, uh, the sin infiltrated the bloodstream of the human race. Every one of us has passed down from our great-grandparents to our grandparents, to our parents, to us. We just continue. And so Jesus in, in the sin offering, it takes care of our sin nature. The guilt offering in chapter five represents the death of Jesus on behalf of our actual sin. I mean, we just saw that he paid for our sin nature when he died on the cross, but see, he also paid for our literal sin. The fact that we lie, the fact that we cheat, the fact that we steal, we gossip. Some of you are Carolina fans. Whatever the sin is, right? He pays for our literal sin. And when Jesus brought the guilt offering to God, it was once and for all honored and accepted. Think about this. And every sin was paid for for all time. Once and for all. Past sin, present sin, Future sin. You say, well, Mike, I don't think my future sins are, are paid for. Well, let me tell you, he ain't going to die again. So you better hope he paid for them. Once and for all. So these are the offerings. I hope you'll go back and read the detail. Now you know where they're coming from. But you will see just how specific and complicated it was. And it had to be done by the book. Now when you get to chapters 8, 9, and 10, you come across some information about the priest. And again, it's information that's vital in that day and our day not so much. Uh, for example, in these chapters, it would tell a priest what to wear, where to live. It would tell them how to conduct their life. It would tell them where to be and when to be there. In fact, it instructed them right down to the details of their own hygiene and their own cleansing. By the way, if you're, by now, and if you're paying attention, I hope you are, you're beginning to feel the binding, confining weightiness of the law. Because you got to understand, the law spelled out every single detail, and it never offered alternatives. It said, do this, and you will live. Don't do this, and you will die. When you get to chapters 11 through 17, we have the laws for cleansing. Let me just give you an overview of these chapters, because you've tried to read through these things. There's information here about diet, about food that God considered to be clean, you know, and those that he considered unclean. Some of it had to do with the kind of hoof that an animal had. But in these chapters, God specifically says, you will eat this kind of food. You will not eat that kind of food. It talks about their hygiene. It spells out how to take care of a mother at the time of birth. It talks about the treatment of disease. And I just wanted to read this one passage just to, just to give you the weightiness of the law. This is the detail that's in Leviticus. When someone has a boil on their skin and it heals, you know this is going to be good stuff. In the place where the boil was, a white swelling, a reddish white spot appears. They must present themselves to the priest. So the priests were also the acting physicians. The priest is to examine it, and if it appears to be more than skin deep, and the hair in it has turned white, how gross is this? The priest shall pronounce that person unclean. It is a defiling skin disease that has broken out where the boil was. But if, when the priest examines it, there is no white hair in it, whew, good news, and it is not more than skin deep and has faded, then the priest is to isolate them for seven days. If it is spreading in the skin, the priest shall pronounce them unclean. It is a defiling disease. But if the spot is unchanged and has not spread, 
it is only a scar from the boil and the priest should pronounce them clean. The priest had the responsibility of identifying leprosy and how to deal with it. Now, why does God do all this? It's practical information. You know why? Because God was going to preserve the Jewish race. See, he's made a promise back in Genesis 15 to Abraham, through you a great nation will come. It's going to be a blessing to all the people, all the nations of the earth. The Messiah is going to come to you. So he's got to preserve the Jewish people. So God had very specific things to make sure that the race preserved, that they continued to grow. When you get to chapter 16 and 17, we have information on the day of atonement. And this is amazing. Once a year, think about that, the, the tent of meetings, you've got that curtain, you've got the Ark of the Covenant in that inner sanctum area. Once a year, once a year, the priest would open that drape and he would go there to make an offering of blood for the nation. I came across one scholar who kind of described that day. I just got to read it to you. I want you to, I want you to hear the details. It's easy to imagine what a dazzling figure the high priest must have presented on the Day of Atonement. He began by doing the things that were done every day. He burned the morning incense. He made the morning sacrifice. He attended to the trimming of the lamps in the seven-branched lampstand. Then came the first part of the special ritual of that day. Still dressed in the gorgeous robe, the high priest sacrificed a bullock, seven lambs, one ram, according to Numbers 29. Then the high priest removed his robe, cleansed himself totally again in water, dressed himself in the simple purity of white linen. There was brought to him a bullock purchased with his own resources. He placed his hands on the bullock's head and standing there in full sight of the people, he confessed his own sin and the sin of his house. For the moment, the bullock was left before the altar. Then followed one of the unique ceremonies of the Day of Atonement. Two goats were standing by. Beside the goats, an urn with two lots in it. One lot was marked for Jehovah. The other was marked Azazel, or the scapegoat. The lots were drawn and laid one on the head of each goat. A tongue-shaped piece of scarlet was tied to the horn of the scapegoat. And for a moment, the goats were left. Then the high priest returned to the bullock, which was beside the altar, and killed it. The throat was slit, and the blood was caught by the high priest in a basin. The basin was kept in motion so that the blood would not coagulate, for soon it was to be used. Then came the first of the great moments. The high priest took coals from the altar and put them in a censer. He took incense and put it in a special dish. Then he walked slowly into the Holy of Holies to burn incense to God. It was laid down that he must not stay too long, lest he put Israel in terror. The people literally watched with bated breath. And when he came out from the presence of God still alive, there went up a sigh of relief like a gust of wind. See, the people didn't know whether or not his sacrifice was going to be accepted. So the priest literally had little bells around the hem of his garment. So as long as they could hear the bells, they knew he was moving. But when they stopped hearing the bells, and so they tied a rope around his ankle before they went in. So that if he died there, they could pull him out. Because no one was allowed to go into the, I mean, imagine this stuff. When the high priest came out from the Holy of Holies, he took the basin of blood and went back into the Holy of Holies. He took the blood and sprinkled it seven times. Seven times up, seven times down, within the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat. Remember, that's that, that golden part of the Ark of the Covenant. He came out and killed the goat that was marked for Jehovah. 
With his blood, he reentered the Holy of Holies and sprinkled again. Then he came out, mingled together the blood of the bullock and the goat. Seven times he sprinkled the horns on the altar of incense and the altar itself. What remained of the blood was placed at the foot of the altar of the burnt offerings. Thus, the Holy of Holies, the holy place and the altar were cleansed by blood from any defilement that might be made that day. And to think that once a year, Every year, down through centuries, the Day of Atonement followed that routine. When you get to chapter 18 to the end of the book, you have some practical guidelines uh, for the Jews. Let me just kind of outline it for you. Chapters 18 through 22 is the Jews, how to live a holy life. This is what God's expectations were for the Jews. This is what it looked like to be holy from a Jew. And these are the verses you know about. For example, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28 do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Most of you have sent me that verse. Thank you. I know where it is. <laughs> and you said, I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy to be your pastor. And I'm influencing your children and grandchildren in a very, very negative way. So that's okay. This is the response you've gotten back from me. Have you read verse 19? Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. You got any clothes, ladies, with cotton and rayon? Get rid of it. How about this one? How about this one? Did you read, hey, did you read verse 26? Do not eat any meat with blood still in it. You like your meat rare? You just skipped that verse. That was convenient, wasn't it? How about verse 27? Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. I would say most of you, including the ladies, you're, 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 you're breaking this law. You know what I'm saying? My point is this. These people are getting ready to go into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And God wants them to know when they go in, you're unique. You're unique. And he wanted the people that lived in the land to know they're unique. That they're a chosen people. He wanted them to be able to look at them and say, oh yeah, they're the Hebrew people. They worship their own God. Because they were going to see that God display his great power. And they wanted to know whose God that was. God said, I want them to know. So he set them apart. Well, when you get to chapter 23 to 26, you have the holy times. Uh, the whole Jewish calendar was designed around the number seven. For example, Passover, we talked about Passover last week. It lasted seven days. Pentecost fell seven weeks after Passover. It lasted seven days. In the seventh month, there was, there was the Feast of Trumpets. There was a Feast of Booths. That's when the Day of Atonement took place. Every day, seventh day, the Sabbath was to be observed. Every seventh year was a sabbatical year, sabbatical year, and the crops were to be rested, and the land was to be refreshed. At the end of every seven periods of seven years, so 49 years, okay, so every 50th year was a year of jubilee. And it was an incredible time of celebration, freedom. Uh, it was a time of, of liberation. Every slave during the year of jubilee was set free. Every debt, your mortgage, everything was canceled the 50th year, the year of Jubilee. And it was God's way of saying, I, I, I'm pleased with you and I want to honor you for being obedient to my plan. Now I told you, you can't really appreciate, you can't really appreciate the book of Leviticus without tying it into the book of Hebrews. So I want you to read something that the writer of Hebrews, I'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 9, Picking it up in verse 6, and it's been talking about all those details I just read about on the Day of Atonement that the priest went through. And so if you pick it up in verse 6, it says, after this was set up, after everything was prepared, the priest went, and this is from the message, I thought it was a little clearer. 
The priests went about their duties in the large tent. Only the high priest entered the smaller inside tent and then only once a year, offering a blood sacrifice for his own sins and the people's accumulated sins. This was the Holy Spirit's way of showing with a visible parable that as long as the tent stands, people can't just walk in on God. Under this system, the gifts and sacrifices can't really get to the heart of the matter, can't assuage the conscience of the people, but are limited to matters of ritual and behavior. It's essentially a temporary arrangement until a complete overhaul could be made. What he's saying is this. He's saying that under the old covenant, the writer of Hebrews, when that priest went in and he offered a sacrifice, he took care of people's sin for a moment. For a moment. But by the time they went to bed that night, they were guilty again. So they had to bring their sacrifice time after time after time after time to take care of the guilt because, see, under the law, there was never a permanent erasing. Now let's pick it up in verse 10 and see how it concludes. Verse 11. But when the Messiah arrived, high priest of the superior things of this new covenant, mercy, grace, forgiveness, love, he bypassed the old tent and its trappings. That's a reference to the tabernacle in this created world. And he went right straight into heaven's tent, the true holy place. In other words, the presence of God once and for all. He also bypassed the sacrifices consisting of goat and calf blood, instead using his own blood as the price to set us free once and for all. And then he says this. If that animal blood and the other rituals of purification were effective in cleaning up certain matters of our religion and behavior, think how much more the blood of Christ cleans up our whole lives inside and out. Through the Spirit, Christ offered himself as the unblemished sacrifice, freeing us from all those dead-end efforts to make ourselves respectable. Look at this. So that we can live all out for God. See, under the law, you were cleansed until you yelled at your wife or you looked wrong at someone or you broke one of God's commandments and you had to go through it all over again. How could you ever live all out for God? What he's saying is this. Not only did Jesus take care of our sin at the cross, he took care of our guilt. He took care of our shame. At the cross, you know what he said? You're free. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you're a brand new creature. Old things have passed away. All things are new. You are a brand new creature. I have now reconciled you back into a relationship with God and nothing can ever come between you and God again. That's what Jesus did. And I'm going to tell you something. When the truth of that sinks in, your Christian journey will no longer be about rules and lists and do's and don'ts. Oh, I got to give. Oh, I got to serve. I'm telling you, out of pure joy and gratitude, you will get up every morning with a pure desire to live for God. If it ever gets from here to here, out of sheer thankfulness for what Jesus did for you on, on the cross, your desire will be every day to please him. If you don't feel that way, it may be because you've never responded to the gospel. And maybe Christianity for you is a list. 
Got to go to church, check. Got to give a little money, check. Need to serve somewhere, check. Need to be nice to poor people, check, check, check. Read my Bible last week, check. But you've never accepted what Christ did for you through his blood. So the shame, the guilt, it's gone. The sins are forgiven. Reconciled back to the Father, never to be separated again. That's why Jesus did it. And I thought, what a great weekend to have the opportunity to observe communion at all of our campuses. Just to say, you know what? If I haven't told you lately, God, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your son. Not just that you forgave me of my sins, but you set me free. You broke those chains to my past, and I've been reconciled to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Leviticus. Most of us never thought we would find ourselves thinking that. But if we take the time to dig in, we get to see what we've been saved from. And when we see the weightiness, the heaviness, the darkness, that black backdrop of the law, it reminds us of what we've been saved from and what we've been called to a new life in Christ, where we now get to walk by the Spirit. We don't even have to fulfill the desires of the flesh. And you did it for us. And I pray, if nothing else, Father, we walk out of this place, and as we observe communion, that we walk out with a brand new appreciation of who you are and what you did for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we say thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We're so excited to be a small part of all the great things God is doing in and through your life. If you'd like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download our app to find ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus. 